Hello everyone, my name is Madison Rutledge. I'm a first year student here at IWU and I am a research assistant for the Center for the Study of Human Trafficking and it is my pleasure today to introduce our guest speaker. Beth Cosson is a wife, mother, pastor, activist, and leader who challenges those she engages with to explore what it means to live justly. Beth has lived all over the US as well as overseas so she brings a unique perspective to engagement with what a global God is doing around the world. Beth is passionate to see the church live into God's call to live justly, encourage the oppressed, defend the fatherless, and plead for the widow's cause. Beth is a graduate of, um, of Wheaton University and is an alumnus of IWU, where she received her ministerial master's degree in leadership. Beth has served as a captain of the U.S. Army, has been an ordained minister for the Wesleyan Church, and is the current director of the Wesleyan Justice Mission. Will you please join me in welcoming Beth Cosson. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Let's pray as we start our time together. Father, would you speak truth to our hearts by the power of your spirit? Would you change us? Would you challenge us? Would you continue to mold and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus, whom we love? We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior. I'm glad we started by recognizing some of the things that have been going on in our world. It seems dissonant to gather, to sing, and to worship God without acknowledging that the world that we live in is really broken. Frederick Buechner said this, here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. My concern is for some of us in Christendom that when we see the beautiful and the terrible, our first response is to try to insulate ourselves from the terrible. And privilege which many of us enjoy in great degrees, allows us to do that. It allows us to insulate ourselves from the suffering, from the broken. It allows us to move past a new cycle. I don't know about you, but on Friday night, watching what was happening in Paris and hearing what happened in Beirut, the, the world's attention was focused on, on that area of the world. And now it's Monday, and the, the tendency is to just move on and to move past it. But I believe that God is calling his church to not move past it, but to move into it. And so we're going to spend some time today just talking about what, what does justice look like? Um, when I was asked to come and to speak in chapel and to kind of kick off the Global Awareness Week, they were like, all right, we want you in 30 minutes to unpack what do justice looks like. And so I'm going to do my best to do that, and we're going to dive in deep. Um, but I want to give you some handholds and some language and some framework that might help you make sense of what it looks like to be a Christ follower in a broken world and to embody God's heart for justice in that world. Your generation is being referred to as the justice generation. And I love that, and I love the passion when I talk to young people. But here's my concern for you, that in your passion... 
You might go so far into the issue that you lose your footing in Jesus in doing it. And so that's really where we're going to camp out and spend a lot of our time together. So there's three ways that we can look at justice. Ken Witzma says this about justice. Justice is part of who God is. Justice is rooted in the character of God, established in the creation of God, mandated by the commands of God, present in the kingdom of God, motivated by the love of God, affirmed by the teaching of Jesus, reflected in the example of Jesus, and carried on today by all who are moved and led by the Spirit. So what is justice? Well, if we, look, if we look at the Garden of Eden and what happened there, God, the Godhead, the Trinity that we just sang about, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, came to a point where they decided to create man. And so we are created in the image of God. Imago Dei. Men and women, we both reflect God's image. It's one of the things that I love about our Wesleyan tradition, that we believe that men and women both reflect God's image, and as such, in that Imago Dei, we have inherent value, dignity, and a need for community. And so what happened when, when, when man was created and there was this kind of utopian thing, it's that things were as they ought to have been. Primary justice, we call that. That's the first way that we can kind of look at justice. This is what should have been. C.S. Lewis talks about it like it's that longing for another world that we experience when we're not, when we're not living as things should have been. And so there's primary justice. And then we know what happened. Sin entered the world and it broke primary justice. It mars and, ref and it changes our ability to both bear the image of God and to see the image of God in others. And, and at the heart of it, at the heart of so many issues around injustice, this is the crux of it. We have lost the ability to bear God's image as we should, and to see that image in others, and to call it out in them, to call them to something more, to treat other people as though they have inherent value, dignity, and that need for community. And so punitive justice becomes, when sin breaks primary justice, punitive justice becomes the world's lens for looking at justice. And the way that I, I kind of think about this is that justice, when you get what you deserve, that's punitive justice. In our world, we talk about it when someone commits a crime and they're sentenced to do the time for it, we say that justice has been, justice has been served. And that's punitive justice. And there's a place for that. But it's not the complete picture of justice that God is talking about when he says, I, the Lord, love justice. He's not just talking about punitive justice. That's just a segment. It's a fraction of what justice is supposed to be. And so sin breaks primary justice, and we then live in a system where punitive justice is in play. And so the wages of sin is... 
That's right. That's, that's punitive justice at work. The wages of our sin is, is death. And so in the Old Testament, the people were commanded to bring sacrifices and atonement, and they were constantly trying to atone and pay for the consequences of their sin. And then there was this beautiful moment where the Godhead looked down and said, enough, enough. And Jesus chose to shed his divine privilege of being a part of that Godhead, and he came to earth. I love Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is, is in the temple, and he pulls out the scroll, and he pulls out Isaiah 61, not by accident. And he talks about his purpose for being here. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set free those who are captive, to give sight to the blind. This prophecy is now fulfilled in your presence. And he embodies in that moment a prophecy that was spoken hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So Jesus, when I look at Jesus and say, why was he sent? He's telling us right there, this is why I'm here. And then, oh, by the way, I came to do all of that while I'm here. And then I also came to die so that, so that man could be justified and there would not have to be sacrifices. And so that punitive justice would not be the only justice that we know, but there would be restorative justice where we could be restored into a state of relationship with God as it should have been. And so restorative justice, that's that, that's that third way that we can look at justice. So Jesus dies he, we are now justified just as if we'd never sinned. We have the opportunity to be reconciled. And when Jesus is, is risen from the dead and he's getting ready to leave, he says, I'm, I'm going to go. And believe me, you want me to go because the Holy Spirit is going to come. And when the Holy Spirit comes, you will do even greater things than the things that I did. You will do even greater things than what I talked about in the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. But to do that, you're going to have to go where I went. You're going to have to do it like I did it. You're going to have to go to the margins, to the brokenhearted, to the poor, to the blind, to the captive. And he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I like that because it's super clear. As, John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me. In the same way the Father sent me, I now send you to do what? To be his ambassadors. That concept of being an ambassador is powerful. Do you know that when an ambassador from the United States is seated with a president or, or someone else in another country and they are meeting with them in that role as ambassador, it is as though the President of the United States is sitting in the room. It is that strong of a parallel. When we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, it says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and he gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them, 
And he entrusts to us the message of reconciliation, the message of restorative justice that we can be restored to what ought to have been. It is, it is in us. It is, it is what we should be embodying. It is what we should be living. It is what we should be speaking, that message of reconciliation. Therefore, so... Because of this, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his appeal to us, through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. I want to ask you this question. When was the last time that you implored someone, that you begged them, that you were willing to get on bended knee and implore someone to be reconciled to God? to give the hope that right relationship with God is possible, that there is hope in the world, that in the midst of beauty and tragedy, Jesus is still the hope of the world. Here's your challenge at a Christian college. You're kind of in the bubble right now, right? There's There's an inherent insulation to how you're living. Just as much as people who are not in the bubble, you are called and empowered to be his messengers of reconciliation. This is not a someday thing. This is not a when I graduate from college um, and after I go to graduate school and once I get my first job and I get set, then I'll do it. This is a here and now mandate. This is, if you are a follower of Christ, this is how he is calling us to follow hard after him. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now that word righteousness is dikaiosune in the Greek. And the fullness of that word, dikaiosune, it gets translated as righteousness mostly in the New Testament. But if you look at what it means, the fullness of that word is both righteousness and justice. It's like in the Old Testament, justice and righteousness. You hardly see one without the other. Mishpat and Sedekah, they almost always go together because here's the reality of reconciliation. The goal of justice is reconciliation. Reconciling people to God. Reconciling people with each other. Reconciling communities. And reconciling broken systems. Communities with systems. People with systems. Justice and righteousness. Living rightly before God and rightly with our fellow man in community. The goal of justice is reconciliation, not engagement with an issue. So this is something that's come to me by slow freight, and I have, I have had to recalibrate to this and recalibrate to this and recalibrate to this. Because the, the issues of injustice are pressing. Um, if I had a penny for every person who, who saw a documentary like Nefarious, which you're going to see on Tuesday night, and I hope you all go see it, but here's, here's what happens often. People see something like that. They, they see the horrors of sex trafficking, and they're like, oh my gosh, 
I want to do something. They call me and they say, hey, I want to start a shelter for um, victims of trafficking, and, and so I want to be all about this issue. And so they start with the issue, and they're well-meaning, and I totally get that. But here is what I want to say to you, and hear my heart in this. We need to be uh, passionate about the issue, but we need to be grounded in the reality that the goal of justice is reconciliation right here with God first. We have to have our feet firmly planted in our theology, our theology of who God is, and he is a God who loves justice, and he cares about the brokenhearted, and he cares about the people in the margins, and so ought we too. We need to be grounded in that we are doing that because we are following Christ. We are not following an issue. If you follow the issue, you are no different from someone who the, in the world who gets motivated to do something about something horrible. And there's a lot of great people. And one of the things I love about justice, that work, it's a great opportunity to rub shoulders with all kinds of people who care about the same thing. But I bring a secret sauce to it, and so do you. The reason that I care about it is a lot different. Because it's rooted in it. I care about it because Jesus cares about it. And I care about what he thinks way more than I care about what anyone else thinks. The goal of justice is reconciliation. And so there are issues. There are issues, though, that we're going to bump up against. And so the Wesleyan Justice Network, we've picked a few issues as a Wesleyan church that we are going to help people engage with, and we understand that this is not the width and breadth of the issues that are out there. Anti-trafficking is one of those issues. But I spend a lot of my time talking about labor trafficking. Sex trafficking has gotten a lot of press, and, and it, it is a... Um, I don't want to say it's glamorous, but it sort of is. Like, it's become the, the topic du jour. But the reality is labor trafficking is far more prevalent, affects far more people, not just internationally, but domestically as well. In the United States, the large majority, upwards of 80% of the trafficking that you would actually encounter in the United States is labor trafficking. And so that leads us into a conversation about how might we, largely white evangelical Christians, be complicit in labor trafficking that's happening. And, and we do that because we're not very uh, particular about the story that our stuff is telling. And so we buy what we want from where we want, from, from whenever we want, and we, we don't get informed about who made that? Where did that come from? Where was that sourced from? And so knowing the story of our stuff, I would, I would challenge you. I would say that it's part of being a Christian who is stewarding our resources well, is stewarding the very lives of people well. And so we talk about ethical consumption um, orphans and vulnerable children. There are said to be 153 million orphans in the world today. And that's just like, that's a huge number, right? You start getting numbers that big and it's like, okay, that's just a lot. And it is. And when you look domestically at the orphan and vulnerable children issue, where I really camp out and challenge the church is that this, 
The most vulnerable children in American society today are our foster care kids. They are the most vulnerable population to being exploited for trafficking. Aging out, running away, homeless youth, who usually, something like 90% of kids who end up on the street at some point were in the foster care system. And so I say to the church, 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 can we do something about the foster care problem, the broken system of foster care in the United States of America? One of the other issues that, that we're really involved with is the conversation around immigration reform. And so the Wesleyan Church has started Immigrant Connection, and we have legal assistance centers happening in several churches across the country and several more in the pipeline. It's a great, tangible way to do something about a broken system. And I know that this issue um, seems political, and there are lots of uh, heated opinions about it. But here's what I know as a Christ follower. In the scripture, it is clear that we are to welcome the stranger. My concern is that we don't want to risk our privilege and really do that. An invitation to do justice, ju to do justice, to act justly. It starts with seeking justice. And I, and I like that in Scripture it talks about, it's kind of like this progression. Like, seek justice, and then do justice, and then you will be able to start to live justly. Which gets to the Micah 6.8. Isaiah 1.17 says this. I love it when Scripture is super clear, because I need it sometimes. And so this one is one to hang your hat on. Learn to do good, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the fatherless, plead the cause of the widow. Now, in our society and culture, pleading the cause of the widow, is, it's a little bit abstract. We don't necessarily think about it like that. But, but in, in the time when this was written, the widow would have been among the most vulnerable, the most likely to be exploited in the culture and society of the time. And so I look at the scripture and I just kind of go, in my context... This is all about pleading the cause of the vulnerable. Who is vulnerable around us? There's a great illustration, and I want to I kind of unpack it with you. I heard it from David Batstone. He's the founder of Not For Sale. But um, many others have used it, Mary Nelson from CCDA, and um, it, it's widely used. And so I want to give you this visual for what we're talking about when we talk about seeking justice. You know, as a Wesleyan church, our roots are firmly planted in the soil of the abolitionist movement. It's one of the reasons I was attracted to become a Wesleyan, because I'm a Wesleyan by choice. I, didn't, I was not birthed into this like many of you were. I've been a Wesleyan for about 12 years now, and, and I'm very proud of our heritage in being a denomination that says we are going to be willing to take a stand against the injustice of the day. And so our, our denomination is firmly rooted in that soil of abolition. And over the years, there were, there were many issues of the day, issues of injustice that we were involved in. 
women's equality, getting women the right to vote, what was happening to the Native American population as they were being displaced and put into reservations and being ignored, um, the poor in the cities. We were a big part of having feeding centers, working with the Salvation Army. We have been, we have been deeply involved in caring for issues of injustice in our society and culture for a long time. But we have left that over the last several decades. We have moved away from our roots in that as we, as we, as evangelicalism became very popular and became something where churches were, were said, you have to make a choice. You can care about saving people's souls or you can care about social justice. And there became a divide in American Christendom. And, and the Wesleyan church went the way of evangelicalism. And so when the civil rights movement happened in America, the Wesleyan church, for one of the first times in their history, was largely absent from that conversation. We are moving back into the roots of our story. We are moving back into that soil that says, it's not an either or. That was a false dichotomy. It's a both and. It's reconciliation. It's vertically with God and horizontally in relationship with other people, horizontally in relation with systems. So the visual I want to give you that kind of shows our progression for seeking justice is this. If you were standing on the banks of a river, and I live right on the Mississippi, so it's really easy for me to visualize this, a huge river that is, that is dark and nasty and has all kinds of stuff in it, but it's beautiful if you look at it from a distance. But if you're standing on the banks of that river, and, and you were to see a child go by, and they are drowning, and they're screaming for help, what would you do? I just want you to think you to yourself. What, what would I do? So you're, you're standing there minding your own business and just sort of an apathetic, I'm here, I'm here for myself. I'm here to enjoy this. Empathy, hopefully you would feel empathy. You would say, if that were my child... If that were me, I would want somebody to do something about this and to rescue me. And so our movement towards justice typically starts with a movement from apathy to empathy. And then compassion, like this is the movement from I'm feeling something to I've got to do something. Compassion will get you to figure out a way to get that child out of the river. So you'll look, you'll find a tree limb, you'll find some discarded rope, You'll, you'll swim out there yourself. You'll bring that child back to shore. And you have now acted in a compassionate, empathetic way. But here's the thing. You no sooner get to shore than you turn around and you see that there are two children in the river. And now you have to make a terrible choice. I can't save them both. Who will I save? What will I do? And then it's three and four, and, and that's the thing with compassion. There is a place for compassion. Compassion gets our feet wet. It gets us in the river. And, and, and for a few decades now, as we've been the Wesleyan church, kind of returning back to the roots of our story, we have been very compassionate. But there comes a point where compassion is not going to fix the problem. It's addressing a symptom of the problem. And so this is where there's a really hard choice that has to be made. 
And, and I want you to think about this as you think about your own life and what profession you will enter into. Because the work of justice is for everyone. It's for teachers and social workers and police officers and lawyers and pastors and communications people and, and media people. And I mean, it is the whole gamut. So I want you to think about this. This is where justice comes in. Compassion says, I'm actually going to get out of the river and I'm going to leave the, what's happening here. And it's horrible what's happening here. I'm not, I'm not minimizing that at all. But I'm going to go upstream and, and I'm going to figure out why there are kids in this river down here drowning. Seek justice. It's a journey. And, and I would posit that it is much harder to go upstream it takes longer. The way is often not charted. It is lonely. Um, there are obstacles, big barriers, boulders. There are all kinds of things that will keep you from getting to the source, to the systemic problem that actually needs to be addressed. But that is where justice comes in. Seek justice. Do justice. Act justly. So what does that look like for all of us? If you're going to be a teacher, I want to challenge you to be a teacher who will go into the margins, who will go into the vulnerable places, who will go to the, to the, to the poor, just like Jesus did. I've come to bring good news to the poor. That could be the rural poor in Appalachia, in the deep south. That could be in our urban centers. And be a teacher who is a reconciler in the broken places for the student in your classroom, but also with the broken educational system that we have in America. Great inequalities that exist there. If you're going to be a lawyer, if you're going to be in law enforcement, our criminal justice system needs reconcilers who are Christ followers, who are deeply rooted in this message of reconciliation. It's a broken system. If you're going to be a columnist, a news reporter, here's what I want to challenge you to be in this conversation around reconciliation and justice. Be a truth teller. Do not compromise the truth for sensationalism. If you're going to be a pastor, be a pastor who leads your heart or leads your church's heart towards God's heart for justice. You know, I talk to pastors a lot in this role. And there is a, a feeling by many pastors that justice is the work of social services. And it is not the work of the church. And if you're going to be a pastor, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't see that anywhere in scripture. I believe that God has uniquely crafted and wired churches to engage in their communities in a specific area of injustice. If you're at a, at a church that has a lot of teachers, be a church that interacts with the injustices around our educational system. I want to acknowledge that none of this comes naturally to us. In white evangelicalism, we serve the God of comfort. We serve the God of safety, we serve the God of security, and so we hunker down and we bring ourselves into the center. But what Jesus models for us is he turns that on his head 
And he says, I came for the poor. I came to be in the margins. I came to make them the center. You will have to choose to live this way. This does not come naturally. It is counterintuitive. But it, but it is the way to be a part of the beautiful. There are beautiful and terrible things that are happening in this world. Don't be afraid. Be the beautiful. Shed where your privilege might take you and step into the brokenness as a bridge to reconciliation. Don't be the rich young ruler who at the end of the day couldn't shed his privilege to follow Jesus. That will be your choice. I want to close by reading you Amos 5. And um, I chose to read it out of the message, which some people might not like. I don't care. Um, because here's the deal. Amos chapter 5, it starts talking about like grain offerings and sacrifices and harps and like all this stuff that we can't wrap our minds around. And I just felt like this was God's word for us. And so I'm going to read it to you. I can't stand your religious meetings. These are the words of God, by the way. I'm not saying these, but I'm just saying. I could be. All right. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects. Your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image-making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? When was the last time you sang to the God of the universe, the God of justice? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's all I want. That's all I want. It goes like this in the NIV. Let justice roll like a mighty river and righteousness like a mighty stream. As you stand on the banks of the river, would you be willing to be people who go upstream? In whatever profession, in whatever calling God has called you to, go upstream, be the beautiful, be a bridge. Let's pray. Father, give us courage where we are afraid. Make us strong where we are weak. Bring beauty out of ashes. Help us to be reconcilers who are always pointing people to you. Give us your love. Grow in us your heart for justice. We love you and we pray all this in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Go with God.